Welcome to episode seven of Better with Paul. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know I only like to bring you world-class performers. Now, what's a world-class performer, Paul? Well, thank you for asking me, Paul. (laughs) All right, let me tell you what I consider to be world-class. It's anyone who's in the top 1% of their discipline. And what we're going to do with this session is take it up a notch. Today's guest, I believe, is not simply world-class. I believe she is number one in the world at her discipline, and that is brand strategy. Today's guest is none other than Rakia Reynolds, who's also the founder and CEO of Sky Blue Media. Now, you may not know Rakia by name, but that's exactly what she wants. She doesn't want you to know her name, but instead know her client's name. Have you ever heard of Serena Williams? Ever heard of Jill Scott? Ever heard of Airbnb? Ever heard of Dell Computer, right? These are all of her clients and more. Rakia is a master at developing brand message and then communicating that to the public. And in today's session, you get a chance to have a masterclass in not only how she built her business, so you get those entrepreneurial tips, but you also get a chance to hear how you, as an individual or someone who's running a company, can stand out in this crowded digital marketplace. Also, How can you develop your influencer brand? How can you monetize your influencer brand? You get a chance to hear all of that and more in today's session. So I want you to sit back, pull out your notebook because the gems are about to drop and get ready for the incredible, I'm calling this masterclass from Rakia Reynolds. Hey. What's up? How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? You know, it's good to see you. It's really good, good to see you. Right see you. I, you know what? It's so funny because I see see you so much online and I'm like, I see you with the kids and your wife. And I'm just like, I just love them. I just love them. Y'all need a family show. Come on now. You, you know what? I feel the same way about you. Can I say this too is? Do you know my wife loves you in particular? You know why? Why? Because of all of these freaking Dell commercials. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like every time I turn on the TV, there's Rakia on a Dell commercial, man. Oh it's my just... gosh. They're still running? Oh my goodness. You know what? They pop up every now and again. People are like, I heard you on the radio. I'm like, for what? Talking about technology. I'm like, oh, for Dell. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really good. I tell you, this is um this is really good for me too, is because I feel like we've been connected mm-hmm. for a long time, but not connected, connected. And this is one of these opportunities where I get a chance just to be curious, you know? Mm-hmm. And my whole idea with this is to unpack the minds of world-class performers. Okay. And I love I can, that. Yeah, yeah. And and I I mean I I, I put you right at the top one percent. And that's that's so nice. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. You you got it. And and that's what I consider to be world class, right? So no matter what the discipline, if you are a top 1% at that discipline, right? Then then I want to know how you got there. Mm-hmm. What you think mm-hmm. about, right? And mm-hmm. it's not just me doing it for me, right? It's me doing it so that others who are on the journey to becoming exceptional could figure out 
how do we do this thing, right? Mm -hmm. How do we become mm -hmm. exceptional? So therefore, we've got someone who's extraordinary, right? Well, you are just too kind. I appreciate that. And you know what? Like when you said that, I was like, you know what? Maybe I really am. <laughs> See, and now, now I, I want to even go there because, you know, I like to stalk all the guests. Do you? Okay. I like to stalk all the guests. So mm -hmm. I did my Rakia stalking. And, and I will say that I have watched probably 15 to 20 full length videos on you. Really? I, oh yeah, for real. Mm. I've, I've probably read, I don't know, 30 plus like, you know, interviews. Okay. Um, I have, I've gone back to the first like five or so photos that you posted on Instagram, right? Oh so my gosh. <laughs> Let me let me so, check. Oh. <laughs> right. Make sure it's clean. Um, but no, I've I really have, have have taken my time. And mm -hmm. I think your story is extraordinary. And there's so many places that we could begin. But here's where I want to really focus on right now, and that is you were a producer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 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 just walk us through the story of how do you go from being a producer? Because mm -hmm. let's, I mean. I think a lot of people from the outside think that production is the most glamorous job in the world. No, gosh. Oh my gosh. It, it, I have to tell you, it's, it's a controlled, it's controlled chaos and an absolute nightmare that you did for some folks that you never want to wake up from. Like I, I loved, I loved the adrenaline of being a TV producer. I loved being able to take already existing stories and craft them in a way that worked for the medium in which I was producing for. Um, I love producing, but I will tell you, I knew I was a producer in the fourth grade. Um, oh, wow. Okay. But I didn't know how to articulate or communicate. So I always say like PSA to parents, like pay attention to your children, pay attention to their mannerisms pay attention to their habits. All of the little things that they do are simply leading them up to the individual that they may become one day. And I remember in the fourth grade, um, you know, the teachers would always tell my dad, like, he talks a lot. Like, she's always <laughs> interrupting the classroom. We can't get her to stop talking. Like, she so I would get notes written home and it was just Rakia keeps talking. And my parents would be like, who are you talking to? And I'm like, well, she, she had to tell me this story. And then I wanted to like talk to her about the story. And it was like me soaking in the storytelling. Like I loved when people told me stories. There was, you know, fourth grade gossip and all of those things. But I was diagnosed um, in fourth or fifth grade with like ADHD. And the teachers would say, she can't sit still. She's, in she's interrupting the classroom. And what they found out was that I couldn't sit still enough. I mean, quite honestly, I, I move a lot. Like I use my hands. I, I do all of those things, but I couldn't sit still enough to like write a book report. And so mm -hmm. we found that to be challenging. Like she can't sit still enough to write a book report, like a five page book report or whatever was assigned to me at that time. So my dad said, well, how do you want to communicate? It, it was like the Boston Tea Party, something, you know, that a history lesson they were teaching us. And he said, how do you want to communicate this? the Boston Tea Party. And I was like, you just got a, like a, a camcorder, like the VHS camcorder. Why can't I record something? Why can't I like make uh, it that way? And I he see. was like, and so I, he, uh, my dad let me do that as a kid. And I can remember, I remember the white t-shirt I wore. I remember the headband I had on. I, 
I remember the friends that I've invited over to sort of act out this history lesson. So instead of turning in like a book report of pages that you could turn, I turned in a VHS tape. And the teachers mm -hmm. were like, okay, this is different. Like you're turning in VHS tapes. And then that sort of carried on. And as I got into, you know, high school and going into college, it, there was something that always stood out, like stuck out to me about being able to tell stories and be able, being able to communicate other stories. I became the spokesperson, like pay attention to the person that's always the one that like, if you're doing a group project, I'll be the one that reports. I, I can right. communicate, I can communicate on our behalf. So I became the person communicating on our, you know, others' behalf. And then I got into television. Same thing, you know, those sort of transferable skills. I started producing for MTV Networks. There was a, a scripted teen drama series that I wanted to work on. Met this amazing, brilliant writer and a producer. And he said, I want to tell stories of like five teenagers. And I was like, say less. Like, <laughs> you want to tell stories? Like, that's me. And so I was able to work on this scripted drama series and help them to remix it and make it relevant for the time. So they had built the characters out to be these people. And I was able to visualize one being on the crew team and what his language was like. You know, oh, hold on. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, Rakia. You said this yeah. was a scripted though. This is a scripted. This was a scripted this at, was MTV. A script at MTV what year Networks. Was yeah, what year this was, was this? Gosh. Oh man, you can make a go all the way back. <laughs> it was called the show was called What Goes On. It listen, it was the same writers and producers of my so-called life in Degrassi High. So all around that same time, gotcha, I don't know, gotcha. 2005, okay. six, something, I don't know, something like that. 2000, between 2005 and 2007. All right. You know why I asked that? Do you know, I had a show at MTV at that time. You did? What was your show? Ah, uh, see, you know, this is, I, I honestly I don't believe I have ever, ever talked about this. But there was a show on MTV. So this this was actually my first, first thing mm -hmm. or my first entree into television. And it just went nowhere quick. But it was okay. called it was called The Seven. The, oh, seven. the seven. It was 2000. I think it was 2007 ish. It was. Wow. Yeah, it was called The Seven. And it was the top seven things that happened that day. Right. So there that. was. Yeah. So, so there, there was, there was kind of like one guy in studio and I was the out of studio roaming reporter. Uh, so it could be whatever. It, it was like, you know, Kanye said something crazy in 2007. Right. And so therefore we're getting the, the reaction of what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. But that was the show. We actually went to air mm -hmm. and then promptly we're taken off. Air. <laughs> wow. Well, how long was it on? How many episodes did you all have? Maybe four, four or okay. five. Like we okay. got a week. It was one week. That we got wow, one week. Dang. Yeah. See. Dang. See. Well, I wish I was helping to produce that show at the time. And we we, we did we did get a, a 13 episodic run, but the network at the time felt we were talking about the LGBTQ community then telling story, mm. telling the story of a young gay male in high school. And the network at the time felt it might be a little too strong. And I I didn't know. I was I was really young. I was like, let's tell all the stories. We were right. telling the story of a biracial young woman. I mean, we had some some really it was it was heavy, but it was it was relevant and it was needed at the time. 
So I was just happy to work on that. And then I started getting into reality television. That's a totally yeah. different. That was when it really popped. That was, re- I was really working when it in reality yeah. television. And then I started working for TLC, Discovery Health. The show that I stayed on the longest was actually this show called Surviving Motherhood. That was my favorite show. It was on TLC and then it was on Discovery Health. And we interviewed experts and it was a, a coffee shop full of moms talking about things like my child is wetting the bed or my child has temper tantrums or my child does this. So we gathered all of these moms in different coffee shops across the country to have these curated conversations. And then we brought experts in to walk them through things. It was, it was yeah. edutainment. It was edutainment yeah. at its best. But see, what, what did you love about producing? Because I will say that I've now had a taste of producing over the years mm-hmm. and I feel like it's a super skill. Right. I actually believe that producers are literally, you know, we are. I'm going to put myself in this category. We You're are. You're a producer now. You're a producer uh, now. We are storytellers. Yeah. Right. We're storytellers. It's just the medium is is television. Right. For that. But, but what what did you love about producing? Mm. There are so many things I love. And, and, and you'll laugh at some. I I love Here's the thing. I've never taken a job or built a career that I didn't love, or I've never done something that I didn't love. And I actually loved the work from beginning to end. I loved putting together the line items, producing the budgets, you know, putting the unit production manager hat on saying, this is what it's going to look like. I loved working in the editing suite with the editor saying, oh, take this shot now, take this shot Hey, let's zoom in on that stroller Let because this is what the audience is going to want. I loved being able to sort of pick the sounds that people would hear. I loved writing the teases like on yeah. this episode of Surviving Motherhood. <laughs> I loved being able to write the teases. I loved producing. I would say my favorite part was producing pa- what we called packages. And they were smaller, like snackable two minute vignettes out of a 30 minute show that really profiled a very specific topic. So you had to ask the right questions. You had to shoot the right angles. You had to get the right reactions. And for me, I was producing them alone. It was myself and a camera person and then like a grip, somebody lighting or doing something. And so I liked being able to have that moment without the entire crew and working directly with the talent and asking them the questions and helping them to craft their story for the medium in which we were producing, which was TLC, Discovery Health, Fox. I mean, you name it. I was producing for MTV, all of these networks, but I liked working one-on-one with people. Yeah. I love how you said helping because, you know, that's when I I learned about reality TV and how the producer helps. That's why you're a producer. That's why you're a producer. (laughs) You produce the answer. Let me tell you, this is what I want you to say right here. Um, (laughs) Can you say that again? See this right here, right here? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> right. All right. So, so, okay. So you're loving it. You're at MTV, right? TLC, right? You're bouncing around, but you're working on projects that you love. And roughly how old are you at this time? Oh, I was in my early, maybe my early twenties at that time. Early um, and 20s. I, yeah. Early twenties because I had children fairly young. So my daughter was two. Okay. Um, my daughter was two. And so she would see, I mean, what I didn't like was the long hours. We had something called Fridays, So it was like your Fridays turned into Saturdays. And I remember my daughter being in ballet classes and I would work from 5 p.m. on a Friday till, till 5 a.m. on a Saturday producing night shots and then take a nap for two to three hours and then have to get up and take my daughter to ballet. And it was like, wow, like I can't do this 
as I get older, I think it, it was great for my early 20s and my mid 20s. And then mm-hmm. by the time I got to my late 20s, early 30s, that's when I, I decided to start my own company. Because then I was like, I think at that point, when I started my own company, I might have been at two kids, almost three. And it all blurs together, but it was like two, having two children, almost three. And it was like, you've got to be able to design your own destiny. I love it, but I, I had to be able to to control it yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it must have a different lifestyle. But but so talk to talk to us about the transition point, right? Because yeah. it it sounds like the the transition wasn't what you had anticipated. Oh no. Yeah. No, I actually had the rug pulled out from under my feet. It wasn't like, oh, let me leave, you know, producing and let me just start a company. It wasn't that easy. It was actually a series of unfortunate events of unfortunate events. I was actually working on a show that I loved. And things started to change. The production company was actually relocating to the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast with my family. And they were like, we're moving everything to the East Coast. This is, you know, what the networks want. And, you know, brought us all into a room. People that weren't moving to the West Coast, they gave us an envelope, which at that time I thought was a bonus. I was like, what? Oh, I'm getting a bonus. I've been doing And it was an envelope. Like, this is your last check. Like, we can no longer pay you after two weeks. And I remember I was pregnant with my second child at the time. And I was like, <gasps> like, are we serious? And my husband had just gotten out of grad school and he was like just starting his career. So we were like, how are we going to pay for things? I was like, we're going to be eating oatmeal and tuna fish for a long time. And so I was like, this is not it. And I was on unemployment for a period of time, you know, having wow. to, yeah, like having to call in. I used to get a little blue sheet in the, ma- the mail, you know, and you'd have to call in and put your little code in and. And so that just, you know, just showed me like, I can't ever, ever put myself in a position where I love something so much that the rug can be pulled from under my feet because I was so focused on how much I loved it that I wasn't focused on the end game. I wasn't focused on what my next step would be. It wasn't strategic. It was like I was in the moment. I was loving it. It was so exciting. And I loved the adrenaline rush, but I wasn't planning. And I was young and, you know, married and having kids. And it was just like sure. trying sure. to do all the things. And so, when I was on unemployment, it gave me such a, a good time to sort of reflect, to be like, okay, what can you do? So I took everything that I'd learned from MTV, TLC, Discovery Health, all of the things and telling stories. And in between doing all of that, those productions, so when you're on production, you have like a dark time where you're on hiatus, you have a few months. I was also working during those times producing fashion editorials for Lucky Magazine. So again, telling stories for there are advertisers that wanted a five-page spread, and I'd be able to tell the story of an amazing entrepreneur or, or an amazing artist through, at that time, you know, the pages of fashion. So I took all of those things that I'd learned and decided to start a company, which is now a multimedia communications company. And now, so- I have a, I have a, I'm sorry, just to yeah, jump in no. there. So what was the decision? To, what, you know, help, help mm-hmm. me understand how you decided to start a company doing that. Mm-hmm. versus going out and getting employment doing that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. You know, I have to be honest, there there was no real blueprint at the time. And I did apply to a traditional public relations agency. Okay. Uh, one, it was too traditional. It was like, this is exactly, and, you know, during that time I was reading job descriptions and it was like line by line. I'm like, I'm a line producer. I dissect lines. Like, I know exactly what they're going to have me doing. And then I did actually work for a PR company 
I learned the foundations, but it was like a four month thing. They they would tell me you have to be in here by eight thirty, and you you can take break during this time, and you can, you can't leave until four thirty. And I was like, you know what? I don't I don't know about this. Like, I you know I just I was like I just didn't know about it, and I'm disciplined. I, I'm so used to working hard you know, like 12 hours a day. Like that's the background that I come from. Like you have to work 12 hours a day to produce something good. Like that was my mindset at that time. But then when I started working in public relations, to me, I was like, this is easy. I could be done by three o'clock. Why can't I leave? You know, like why, why are you making me stay here? When I am building relationships really quickly, I'm getting all of the placements. The the person, the two people that are sitting next to me, they're still trying to make it past line one. And I'm, you know, on line seven and I've gotten all of the things. So I just, I didn't understand, like, if I was delivering in such a high capacity, why were you making me stay? Why were you just making me stay there? And there were times it, it was like they had nothing for me to do. And I was just sitting there like. Twiddling your thumbs. So that, that was it. That's interesting. That's interesting. So you had that experience with another PR agency, didn't necessarily like the fact that you were you couldn't be as productive, really as efficient as you as you wanted to be. Or be but, creative. They wouldn't let me create anything. I was okay. like, people are and I one thing about me that it is almost it's a great attribute to have, but it's almost it, it's flawed me in the past. Being so futuristic, I will tell you. From a child, I've been, you know, my mind has always been, what's, what, what are people going to be doing next year, two years right. from now, three years right. from now? What is the future of? I've always thought like a futurist. And when I was at the traditional PR agency, I kept saying to them, listen, no one's go- going to be just sending out press releases. You need to, you need to do video. There needs to be a web strategy. And they would right. be like, that's not why people are paying us. They're only paying us X amount a month. So we're delivering this. And I didn't, I didn't like that approach. I didn't like just the one track linear approach. I wanted to have like a fully integrated strategy and they wouldn't allow me to do that. And I was like, it's time for me to go. So so let me ask you a question on this, right? You just said that you could kind of travel into the future. You're futuristic. Every single entrepreneur that I've interviewed in this series is what I consider to be a super forecaster. Mm. Someone who can forecast with, high accuracy and probability what is going to happen. So just like Wayne Gretzky saying, you have to escape to where the puck is going, yep. to where the puck is, right? You know where the puck is going. Now, what do you believe at that time about your background, your experiences led you to be able to forecast? I think being able to create under tension, you know, with production, you are under such strict deadlines where you have to produce something overnight. You, you, you have to get it done. The network is breathing down your neck. And I also think that the way that I grew up, my parents didn't have a ton of money. It was like, if you wanted something, you kind of had to make it. It's like, oh, you want to go, oh, you saw that commercial on TV where that dinner looked amazing? Go in the kitchen and make it yourself. (laughs) Oh, you like that amazing, like designer dress that that person is wearing on that show you like? Go and make it yourself. So it was, I always came from a place where it was like, I had to create. That was the only way that I knew. And so when you're creating, if you're someone that's constantly creating and creating, like being able to create something, it's iterative. You work through so many different models. And I don't think that anyone knows the future or can predict the future. I think science says that you can sort of calculate the future based on like 
like effects of something. So when you're creating, you can, so it's, it's all calculation. You can calculate it. You can think about the thing you did yesterday and say, how is going to, how is it going to impact tomorrow? And so that's how I think good trend forecasters be, you know, and I, again, pay attention in school. I was always like voted, you know, best dressed. And my parents would be like, you think school is a fashion show? No, that was a sign of creativity. I always knew like here, here are some things that I'm paying attention to. I bet you this is what people are going to be wearing in the next six months. So when I wore it to school, people were like, what are you wearing? Who, who are you? But it was all a part of that trend forecasting. And I, it relates to the work that I do now. It related to the work that I did mm-hmm. then in television. And now I'm just I'm doing it for major brands and celebrities and products. And yeah. so it all it all built me up to everything I'm, that I'm doing now. I love it. I love it. So you're so you're working at that agency, but you could see the future is digital, the future, all these things that they're not doing. So then was it that moment that you started Sky Blue or or did you pivot? Was there another another job in there before you? No, it was, you know, it was leave. It was leaving, you know, and having been on unemployment, gotten that job, leaving that and then. A few months later, starting to, oh, I did start another company. This is what you can't Google. I did start another. Uh, I started a communications agency just for artists. Uh, again, a little too ahead of its time, like visual artists, graffiti artists, glass blowers. Um, <laughs> glass blowers. <laughs> glass blowers. Listen, there's a market. There's a market out there for a glass blower. Let me tell you, I represented a glass blower. And so my kids are fighting, so you might be able to hear them. You know, you know what's I, crazy? My kids are fighting right now at the same time. Oh, they're arguing. I can hear them in the bathroom. Somebody I can, I can hear my, my boys are literally fighting next door. See? See, like, this is what I'm saying. But I said, hey, I'm going to be doing something until 1130 that I just need you to be super quiet for. They're like, we got it. <laughs> yeah, we got it. Thing. Now oh, I can man. hear them click clocking down the steps. But anywho, I forgot what I'm saying. I forgot what I'm saying. All right. But you said, no, you started a, you were going to be the number one trend forecaster for glass blowers in the world. That's what you were. Oh, <laughs> the glass blowers. I was out here writing stories, getting glass blowers PR. I'm like, if I can get a glass blower and a scraffito artist, <laughs> a press placement, I can do anything. And I was making them, listen, people were like, mind blown. Glass blowing is a new thing. Scraffito <laughs> art, who would have thought? And so I was writing all of these stories, getting these people placed, national publications. And I mean, make, you know, like making lemons, you know, when people say making lemons into lemonade, I, I remember this one campaign, they were doing something with trash cans and I got good morning America to report the weather from near the trash can. This wow. artist wow. did this artist designed this trash can in this business improvement district that I was working in. And the goal, they hired me as a strategic kind of crisis communications consultant to bring people into the neighborhood to make them feel safe. And I was like watching the weather one day and I was like, what if I can get the weather reporter to report from this business improvement district right next to those trash cans? And I did that. And people kept saying, these trash cans are on. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. So so this is interesting. See, I didn't know about this. So yeah, you those are things this- you can't Google. Okay, this is this is good. This is good. So you had this communications firm, but it sounds like it was working. I mean, you were getting these national placements. So then why the pivot away from that? Because I had a business partner who was, and you know, when you say you are not equally yoked, we were not equally yoked. I was doing, I would say 80% of the work. She was, she was creative and she was a different kind of creative. I think they're, 
There's creative where you can be a, a visual person and you can be conceptual and you can be a visionary. I'm a creative person that does all of those things, but I also like to implement and execute. I like to carry things out. And so I'll, doing that, being a right and left brainer, you know, some people don't believe in the right brain, left brainer theory, but I, it helps me to think. And so being creative, but then also being a person of execution and implementation caused me to work sort of, it, it, it was 80% and she was doing 20% and it wasn't like the Pareto 20%. So I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not doing this. And then I started Sky Blue Media. And that's when I knew I had to do it, you know, kind of by myself so I can, so I can understand what a lot of people don't pay attention to, like, what are your values? And when I had a business partner, I didn't really know what our values were because she couldn't clearly communicate what her personal values were. So I started Sky Blue Media about three months after I ended that relationship and shifted and just shifted. I got you. Okay. So what year is this that we started Sky Blue? 10, uh, 2010. We we are 10 years. Yeah. Wow. 2010. We're in our celebratory 10th year now. Wow. Congrats. I love that. Thanks. All right. So, so now you start Sky Blue in part out of the frustration of dealing with this, this partner, but namely because you believe you know where the industry is going. Mm-hmm. Public relations, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now public relations is a new discipline. It sounds like it's a new discipline because you just got the PR job, but before that you were a producer. Mm-hmm. But it was the same thing. Yeah, it's all the... It's all the it same. Was, okay. It, it, it was transferable. I think, you know, PR for a lot of folks, like what I was doing in the world of producing, which is why I was, a, which is why I was successful with my agency is because I built all of these relationships with, you know, all of the producers that I was producing with went off to go and produce other things. The camera people went off to produce other things. You know, the sound people went off to produce. So then you have a network of 50, 60, 70 people who are at CBS This Morning, Good Morning America, MTV, NPR. You know, you name it. Every publication, the Marie Claire's, the Vols, the Seventeens, the Essence, the Ebony, all of my network and my relationships started to permeate throughout the industry. And by the time I looked at it, I was like, I have relationships everywhere. And that's the bulk of it. You're being a relationship manager for people. And then I had friends that were leaving and then going to work for big brands. They were coming, becoming CMOs. They were in charge of the marketing budgets. They were doing all of these things. So it was not only like media people that I that were starting to spread out, but I maintained yeah. and cultivated the relationships with all of the brands and all of the folks that were moving outward. I got to say this, Ricky, this is me in full disclosure on something. This is, and you're going to help me with this. This is, this is a massive issue I have had for a decade. I, and I, I'm a, just keep it real. You ready for this? You sure? I'm ready. Sure. I'm ready. I have despised the PR, the, the kind of the PR. Yeah, you're not the only one. Yeah, yeah, for a decade. But something that you just said made all the sense in the world to me is that I have probably had three different publicists, right? And I've worked with publicists for a variety of projects, you know? Mm-hmm. I've never been satisfied. Mm. But I believe that that, the reason why is because they didn't have relationships. It mm. was all cold pitching. But oh, you yeah. just, but it, to me, 
OCR, it seems like it's only successful if there are relationships that are in play where you can literally pick up the phone and have a conversation. If you're cold pitching, if you're having to cold pitch someone, it seems like it's just it's it's just uh, it's not as effective as as having the relationship. But I, yeah. yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so but but help me with this, because you say I'm not the only one. So you you must have heard this before. Yeah. You know, and I, and I will tell you, a lot of folks will say, you know, I've had an issue, you know, with my publicist or we weren't satisfied with our publicist. And I would for full transparency. So Sky Blue Media as a multimedia comms agency, publicity is, a, is one portion of what we do. It's only uh, okay. one one portion of what we do. And so okay. I think, and, and, and I could have a, a different viewpoint if we were only a public relations agency, but there are times, I mean, I have a director of media and strategy and she typically will work with our comms team to pitch stories to national outlets and sometimes, you know, internationally, you know, pitch our clients depending on the project. But what they do is if they can't get through to an editor, you sometimes have to say, let me text my person at so-and-so. Oh, I'm going to call the editor-in-chief there. Oh, let me, let you know what? I know the head of programming at so-and-so and so-and-so and so Let me call them. So relationships are a huge part of it. However, I think a lot of companies hire us for the brand strategy piece of it. Because right, I don't think that. that you can't get, I don't think that you can build a brand just on public relations alone. I think that it has to be an integrated marketing strategy, especially in this day and age. So I think what we do that might be a little different than a traditional public relations agency, which is why I couldn't fit into a traditional public relations agency previously, is there's the PR story, but like we work on what is the messaging? What is the feeling that people get? So from an experiential standpoint, like if if I were, you know, a, a communications person, I would say, how are you showing up to all of your podcast interviews? What are the colors you're wearing? There's color psychology. I studied it. There's color psychology. People wear certain colors to evoke a different kind of mood. Yeah. You may yeah. say seem yeah, wearing you, yellow. You, you don't mess around with, with those colors. No. I'm telling you, I've never seen you in an interview without, without blue. Without blue. Never. No. And you know why? Blue... <laughs> is the color. 70% of brands will use some sort of blue hue in their marketing, if they're smart. Blue is the color of trust, honesty, and sincerity. Our core values at Sky Blue Media, and those are close cousins, integrity, honesty, and authenticity. We believe that we are the truth serum to a lot of our clients. We don't like, and a lot of PR folks, and I love my PR folks, but we don't do like a publicity stunt. We don't believe in produce. Like I'm a producer, but I want to like you pay attention to what I said before. I help with the message. So tell me what you want to say, and then I'll say this is how we can say it. This is it. how we communicate. But I won't say this is what you have to say. Have to say. So when you so in 2010, you started as this all encompassing agency. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just PR. It was the whole. Okay. It was brand okay. strategy. It was brand partnerships. We were doing a lot of image you know, image consulting and styling to make sure that you were who you said you were, you were, or you, we were building you to be the person that you told us that you wanted, you wanted to be. So we were from head to toe. What is your message? What What is the language that you're using? What are the colors that you're wearing? How are you showing up? What are your events looking like? 
What does your social footprint look like? What does your digital landscape look like? Are you using that for your Google AdWords? When really in your bio, you say these things right here. So it was a three, it was really a 360 strategy, holistically all-encompassing. So a lot of brands were coming to us, tech brands, you know, business improvement districts, uh, you know, fashion brands, beauty brands. And then we started to get, you know, some celebrities coming in. And then we started to get, you know, bigger networks coming in. So by the time the agency was about three years, we had like an all-star client roster. Like wow. from at 2013, 2014, we were doing like big events and brand strategy. And the number one thing is, you know, I, I never brought on a client that would ever go against our values because I always wanted to go go back to the question of like, do people trust us? Do people trust us? That's it. Like, do people right, trust right. us? Because I, I want to work with people that I trust and I want people to have that same trust that I'm going to deliver, it. that my, my, my team is going to deliver that we are never going to lie on your behalf, that we're going to tell really good stories that are representative. Yep. So this is interesting. So between 2010, 2013, it sounds like there was tremendous growth that happened. Because also you started saying we, first it was like, I started this. I was like, we, I was like, hold on. We we, we didn't get to the we yet, right? So between 2010, 2013, speak to that growth, but namely, how did you obtain the growth? Because and, and also, if you could drop numbers, I, you know, I, I know, I know you want to ask because I know that you I saw a previous episode. You were like, give me the numbers. And I think it was love, love. she was like, show me your check. Let me was like, all right, you tell me yours first. All right. So here's the thing is, is that the reason why I like numbers is just for us to put it in perspective, because 2010, we're at zero. Mm-hmm. A zero. matter of fact. You're, I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of stress running. Like, I mean, your your husband is probably like, all right, come on now. Get this credit. Oh my gosh. It was bad. (laughs) Paul, let me tell you, it was bad. It was my bank account during that, those times. And even in 2013, when we did become a we in 2014, you know, we're 10 years old. I'd say we didn't, I wasn't sleeping right until we got into 2015. I think I didn't have like a good Mm -hmm. night's sleep until like 2015. It was hard. It wasn't, you know, I am so amazed and so proud of some of these other companies that I see that come out of the gate and, you know, three, four years in, they're making millions of dollars in profit. You know, let's be honest, as a service business, our margins weren't going to be like that, you know, working with big brands. And I'll be even more honest, you know, a black woman starting an agency like this back then that had no name, you know, I I was a a TV producer Ageism is a real thing. I looked really young, you know, so like in my 20s, I, I know I was looking like I was in my teens. So people <laughs> were like, well, why would we pay this this young girl all of, you know, all of this? And we all know the inequities in just pay gap. So we weren't making a lot of money. I was able to, you know, I had interns and then I had freelancers that were working. We started getting into that full time. I think maybe full time was like maybe 24. 14. Okay. Well, you had your first full-time staff. Okay. Yeah. I always had a lot of folks around like freelancers and consultants and part-time people, but like full-time, full-time wasn't until maybe like 2014. Gosh, I can't even remember. Maybe 2014, 2015. I have someone at my agency now. She, you, she probably should have been on here because she (laughs) will know. She's been there for eight years. Wow. Wow. This, this August, it, it'll be her eighth year. 
And she That's started as an intern and she's now our director of media and strategy. See, one of I the highest it. paid people, you know, at the agency. Um, but she's been there for eight years. And so our creative director started as an intern. He started it. He'd been there for seven years. So they probably know the numbers more so than I could. They could probably, this is what you were paying us then. Yeah, this this okay. So 2015, all right, I'm going to guess. I'm going to say at 2014, 2015, we're not, we're not making a hundred thousand dollars. No, probably not. Probably we're not. not. Okay. I mean, and our clients were, you know, they weren't paying us a ton, like paying us a ton of money, right? Like people were like taking a chance. Like, do I take a big risk and pay this agency? Like, I don't know what the ROI is going to be. Right. But we were building, building, building. All right, pardon the interruption, guys. I just want to spend a moment to thank Switch and Board. It's a podcast studio in Washington, D.C., owned by a good friend of mine. And if you like the production quality of this podcast, if you like this track as much as I do, which I love it, it's all thanks to them. Now, Switch and Board specializes in podcasters like me and you who are busy. We travel a lot because not only have they mastered in-studio production, guess what? They've mastered remote podcasting production. That's right. So you could be anywhere in the world and Switch and Board has you covered. Now, if you want to learn more from Switch and Board, I want you to go to paulcbrunson.com backslash studio. That's S-T-U-D-I-O. And let me put you on. And now, back to the show. So then on that note, were you discounting your cost? Well, I'm sorry, your, what you were charging because you were this unknown entity? Because a lot of, a lot of us entrepreneurs have a tough time pricing mm -hmm. early, right? We, mm -hmm. we believe we know what our value is, but we also understand that the market doesn't know what our value is. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how, were you, how did you determine what your pricing was? So I, I never liked to use the words discount. I used mm. to say we have a sliding scale, right? Like we have a, we have a sliding scale. I had to PR it. <laughs> so, de <laughs> so depending on where you are in your company, if you're early stage, we are not going to charge you as much as an established company because we were offering a sliding scale. So no one, I would, I would never let anyone come into a company saying, you know, can you discount it? I mean, I had people asking like, oh, can we barter? Well, what? Can I pay people in bartering? You know, I've had people like, well, we can barter. Oh, I've had people offer so many things. Oh, what if I offer you clothes instead of paying you your full retainer? And I would say, well, let me ask my staff if they can pay their rent in, in clothing. I mean, they're going to look good, but they'll be on the street. So, so it was offering a sliding scale. And then we started, you know, I would say we we started to see, you know, 2015, 2016, we were like, oh, this is what it's like. Because I remember having to meet with my accountant and my accountant said, this is what you did last year. This is what you're expected to do this year. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to put the numbers out there, but I will say, I think maybe 2016 or 20, one of those years, I remember looking at Q1 and it was what we had done in the entire previous year. Just oh, wow. Q one, and oh, I was wow. like, we have we have we we have three more quarters to go, and this is wow. what, this is what we did last year, and so it it was interesting, but it took time, especially in businesses where you have to build trust and you're a service business. It takes time; these things don't happen overnight, and we're still building. 
Right, right. So, so now, because we don't want to go deep in the numbers, <laughs> <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? You know, Rakia, can I say you are the smoothest with avoiding the numbers of anyone? Because some people would be like, you, you have, you have just pivoted me ever so slightly off the conversation, <laughs> right? But, but let me just say this: forget the numbers. Actually, mm-hmm. let's talk about the results. Yeah. So, right now, today, speak on some of these clients that you have and some of the events that wow. you do. Like, speak, speak on, like, yeah. brag on yourself a little bit. What are we yeah. looking at right now? Man, I wish because I, I have numbers. a poster of my clients. Any numbers? Like, you want to drop? You could drop. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask. No, my clients are not going to come after me. No, because no one knows how much we charge. You know, we don't keep that out there. But Airbnb is one of our clients. So we 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 divide our work into people, products, and places. So on the people side, you know, we worked and launched Ashley Graham's brand, supermodel. Worked with her for about five years on all of her campaigns. We were her in-house agency. Um, we've been working with Serena Williams for a few years. I mean, I've, I've worked with Serena a long time ago on her brand for HSN. And then when she took everything in independently, we're now the social and digital agency for her S by Serena brand. And then on the Serena Williams side, we work with her on the brand partnership side of that. Um, we have M. Night Shyamalan on the people side. We wow, represent, nice. yeah, M. Night Shyamalan. I mean, to represent like such brilliant people like that, it's, and they're brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, on the people side, we have Jill Scott. So we were behind the scenes working on Versus. Yes. Yeah, so okay. The hottest Versus. That was the hottest Versus, by the way. Well, you know what? It, listen, it's Jill. She's brilliant. She's She is, when I tell you, like one of the most magical human beings, she is just, I mean, having, I have weekly calls with her. Um, uh, well, we have weekly calls with all our clients and you just sit on the Zoom calls with her and like, mm-hmm. yeah, yes. Yeah. And she's yeah. talking and we're going through things and you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's just a level of like, because she talks like this. Does it? When she's upset, what does she? What does Jill Scott do when she's it's, upset? She it's just, still, you know, hey, we're gonna do this. We're gonna, <laughs> all right. And you just know the li- the little, you know, like inflection in the voice. You're like, okay, but it's never. It's always really just, just I mean, chill, just chill. So. Yeah. Jill and M. Night Shyamalan and, you know, um, previously with Ashley Graham, we have a a young social activist that we work with by the name of Marley Dias. We started and launched the campaign, hashtag 1000 Black Girl Books. We uh, represent the co-creator of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza. So we've got brilliant people, another young author by the name of Cole Brown. We We have some more people coming down the pipeline. Like this next, this next few months we have. So, I mean, this roster. And then on the product side, there's Morgan Stanley, there's Airbnb, there's Dell, you know, <laughs> there's Dell. My people at Dell. Um, we're doing some really cool work with Revlon right now on the product side, started working with them a little bit ago. And on the place, you know, so people, products and places, we were working with the city of Philadelphia on their global identity. So again, not the public relations piece, but like what, what is the messaging? What is the language? What's the new lexicon? What's the future of your lexicon? And how are you communicating? Uh, and then we did some work with Memphis um, a while back on working with this, a, a set of about 400 entrepreneurs on marketing and color theory and how to position their brands and what are the stories? I mean, it comes down into what are the stories that you're telling people? Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. 
absolutely incredible. Can you tell us how much money? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was like, all that's good, but how much money are you making, Rakia? <laughs> no. So here's 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 where I want to go is the people, the products, the places, phenomenal. I'm curious when people come to you, because a lot of people listening, watching, are trying to position their brand as a thought leader, right? They're trying to monetize also their brand. I would imagine that a lot of the personalities coming to you are looking to do that at some point, is to monetize product services. What are some suggestions that you are giving to the Serena Williams of the world, right, on how to position your brand for the long haul? Because I yeah. think this is very important is that I think that a lot of us uh, who've been around for a little bit, we see how quickly someone can be hot and then tomorrow not. Mm -hmm. If you are looking, if someone's listening and they want to position their brand for the long haul, right? What are some tips? Yeah. That? Well, first, let me just tell you, Serena Williams as a as a brand and as a visionary, I, I would say most of that is her. She is brilliant. She is a brilliant I mean, you know, people see her as the greatest athlete of all time, but y'all have to know she is a brilliant content person. She's a brilliant creator. She's a brilliant business person, a brilliant marketer. And I will say the folks that we work with, all of the folks that we work with are people that really know themselves and know their vision. And I would say to people that are trying to position themselves and then later on want to monetize off of that leadership or the thought, the thought leadership or what their brand stands for, you really need to understand who you are. I think it does start with vision, but also knowing your, your mission of like, what are you giving back and what are you communicating to the world? What is your sort of ethos or brand manifesto? Like, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Because I think you know, all of the things that we were doing previously are now going to be thrown out. I mean, this pandemic yeah. and the social unrest has changed the way that people think. And so I think the future of communications, the future of positioning yourself really comes down to people that are relentless about the, I would say, the the constant challenges that will be coming about. And there are people that can position themselves, but they're not so firm in what their values are and what they believe in, and they will waver and they will go back and forth. And you as, a, as an influencer, as a thought leader, as a celebrity, and there are so many different kinds of influencers. There's the celebrity, there's the micro celebrity, the micro influencer, there's the nano influencer. There are all of these different kinds of influencers. The ones that are successful are the ones that are firm in who they are, what, how they communicate, and what they want to offer to the world. So if you look at things like a Venn diagram, it's like your audience, you know, your values, your beliefs, all of those things in that one bubble. And so, so, and even just to start with that, Rukia, so you're saying that literally we should identify, okay, this is what we value. So I would say I value legacy, um, you know, free culture, economic freedom. So identify, yep. I, I, we identify those. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. I, identify those things, write them down, and you have to be able to communicate what they mean. So if you're a solopreneur, if you're someone just going out on your own, 
you need to understand them so that you can communicate them. I sit in so many meetings where we, you know, talk to brands or we're talking to someone that's a solopreneur or someone that's, you know, a new entrepreneur that's trying to position themselves. And you can ask them a few questions like, you know, what is what is your product offering? What are you doing? And they go around about and they go, but they never get to the nucleus of who they are, what they do, what they're offering, why they're doing it. You know, the simple, fundamental, the who, what, when, where, and why. Like you really have to, I know it sounds really fundamental and really simple, but that who, what, when, where, why, and how is the basis of a really good communications plan. And you as yourself, as a brand, should consider yourself a, a, a marketing target you know, you are, you know, when you look at, you know, I'm always working on comms plans and it's like, what are the goals? What are the objectives? And what are the tactics? You can't get to goals, objectives, and tactics if you don't know the boilerplate messaging at the beginning. Like, what is the story? Like, what is the story? And I think, you know, not to get back to you, not being, you know, obsessed in love with the PR people, but if the folks don't know, like if you're not on people, or like, this is what my story is. This, These are what my values are. So that that also aligns with a publication. You know, like sometimes comms people will say, here are my 50 target outlets I'm going to pitch you to. Do those 50 target outlets really line up with who you are, sure. what you do, how you communicate, your values, and what your audience is? And I think we're going to see a little bit of a shift. And I think I've already started to see it before we were creating content as influencers things we liked, things we saw for ourselves. You know, some of the brands, well, I like this. And we are going to shift into the we society. You are going to see more people and influencers and thought leaders and creatives creating for their audiences. I think people have said, oh, I'm doing this for my audience. But I do think we're going to see a big shift in creating more so for the audiences. That's that's interesting. So, and, and how do you connect the creation for the audience with the values. So you're saying we identify those values. So, uh, and I'm just giving myself as an example. So say, you know, culture is, is, is one mm-hmm. that, you know, that, I, that I value. So then it's creating, what is it? Content, products, et cetera, for my audience. community, for my mm-hmm. audience mm-hmm. that embodies those values. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah. staying true to that. And staying true to those things. I mean, here's the thing with that. It, it's a lot of folks get uncomfortable with that because they don't see things right away. So I, like, just from a simple standpoint, if you are, if your values are, you know, culture and legacy, I see that like, oh, let's just take your Instagram feed, for example, you know, culture, the things that you're doing, the places that you're going to, the, the, the places that you're dining at, the food that you're talking about the legacy, the lessons that you're teaching your children, you know, highlighting that, you know, your wife is practicing yoga and doing mindfulness. This is the legacy. And these are the lessons that you want other people to learn. You can then see what your audience is more engaged in, not how many likes, but what are the comments like? Are they asking for more? Are they saying, oh my goodness, this was really helpful. Or can you expand upon that? In so many words, someone's not going to say on Instagram, hey, can you expand upon it? But if people right. are asking you questions and engaging with you more, don't look at the likes. Look at what the engagement is. See where see where you're seeing most of that. And then you can sort of have your own sort of like key performance indicators of like, this is what my audience really wants. But it does have to be true to your values. Now, if you're posting 
things that you don't really believe in and you do see your, this is where you have to be firm in your values. If you're posting things or you're providing things that not, are not really comfortable to you and your body can tell you that it's not comfortable to you, but your audience loves it. They love it. They're highly engaged, but you still don't feel comfortable with it. That's where I see the breakdown. I, th this is where I see people fall short because they're now just doing it for the audience. Yes. I think there has to be a really good balance. So there is a good balance of creating for your audience, but also being true to your sort of vision the values and the things that you want to offer to the world. We're at this, you know, if you simply look at, you know, basic psychology of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how people communicate and how people could connect with things, I think we're right at this point now where people want to learn because we're in this unlearning moment. People want to learn. So I think people that are trying to position themselves right now, be, authorit be authoritative and be thought leaders, ask yourself, whatever you're doing, whatever you're producing, whatever you're providing, whatever you're creating, how are you helping someone else? Absolutely. What are they learning? What are they walking away with? Like there was a meme I saw uh, a while ago and it was like, what did they do.com? Like, what did they do? Like, what, are, what did you do? Like, what did you do? Like you posting, like, you know, a slice of pizza. There's one account that I follow just to just the left. And the guy just talks about pizza. But I'm like, what did he do? I mean, he's providing comedy. That's why people, and, and he's successful. And I'm like, it's some of this stuff is a little moronic. Yeah. But what he's doing is giving people a little bit of laughter. That's it. But he's now become a leader and he's gotten all of these brand partnerships because he's offered some levity, giving folks some laughter and he is branded as this person where you can go for mindless entertainment. Michelle. Now that works for some people. Exactly. And it sounds like th those are, he's identified uh, a narrow set of kind of values and he stays to that. He doesn't yes. deviate from it. He's no. not dropping burgers or hot dogs. Right? Never. It's always, <laughs> never. I, 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 it's always, you can, I, I know if I ever go to his page, I will never see a burger or hot dog a seafood restaurant, it is always pizza. So you, he knows his values are, I want to stay true to who I am. And I really like pizza, like just simple things like that. I mean, if he said this, I love pizza. That's all I want to talk about is pizza. Those are his values. And now he is producing those things and he understands that his audience is reacting to now him doing, um, he's done this thing where he sort of like judges people. He like will do pizza roundups and like go to this place because this place has this and this place has the grease and this has place has the cheese. He understands his values, his core values. He doesn't deviate from it, but then he also understands what his audience wants and why they're coming to him. I love it. I love it. So he is an influencer now, right? He's an influencer, not a thought right. leader. I wouldn't say no. thought leader. I'd say an influencer. He's yeah. an influencer. All right. So, so now please teach us about the current state of influencers. Th this is one where I feel like I've got one foot in, one foot out. You mentioned there's nano influencers, there's micro influencers, there's macro influencers. What is truly, what is an influencer today? And then I want to get into the numbers. How much do influencers actually make? Right you know now? what? I will tell you this. They It varies and no influencer no influencer is the same because there's so many different, you know, different influencers. You know, there's the celebrity influencer. There's, you know, the micro influencer. There's the nano influencer. 
And it, it depends on the audience. You know, celebrity influencers may have over, you know, a million, but the nano influencer and the micro influencer is the space that I'm most interested in for this conversation, because those are the folks that have a very trusted audience. And these are folks that range from a couple hundred to maybe 20, 30, 30,000. Once you get to that 100,000 threshold, that's a different influencer. Yeah. So, so you're saying a couple hundred to a couple to, to 20, 30,000. Is that just on Instagram or is that across a, platform? Any platform? Well, okay. so here's the thing, because some brand, some brands will say, I just want the data set for Instagram. But what I would encourage people to do is give people data sets for across social because your audiences are going to be different on each platform. Your data set on Instagram might be the folks that just want a window to your world and they want to understand the hands behind the brand. Your Twitter influencers and your Twitter audience is going to understand you as a thought leader and where your mind is going because they, they're just seeing your words. Your Facebook audience, well, it has shifted because of the algorithms and it's now more in the pay to play. That's more of your community folks. Those are the folks that want to know what your events are like. You know, before Facebook, because of how free-flowing it was, you were able to post things and get such huge engagement because it was more of a family play. I could post a photo of the kids eating cake and everybody would chime in. But with right. the algorithmic changes and the way that Facebook is set up right now, you are only going to see those posts if you have done some sort of optimization, if you've done a paper play. I mean, it, it's just not what it was two, three, three, four years ago. But I think what I would encourage influencers to do is never just offer one data set. Explain to brands or publications or whomever you're working with on how your different platforms work for your brand. How does your Facebook, how does your Twitter work? And also, don't just stick to those platforms. If you're an influencer who's organizing micro communities, maybe you have an app or, or maybe you manage a Slack channel of a thousand or two thousand people. Those are the influencers that people need to watch out for. The influencers that are building micro communities that not everyone can see, that they have a data set of I just spoke to someone at Forbes and they have a Slack channel of like 4,500 really trusted individuals. I'd rather rather partner with something like that than, hey, let me just go to this. And it works for some people. If you're a beauty brand, you might want someone that is amazing on Pinterest or really amazing on Instagram. But if you're someone that's trying to foster community and build a product and have a sustainable marketing or integrated marketing strategy, you also have to introduce influencers that are building the micro communities. That's the direction we're headed. That's the direction we're headed I, into. I, I, I love it. So, so in, and I think most of the folks listening, watching fit that category of a couple hundred people to maybe 20,000, right, in, in the following. So when you said the data set, make sure that we provide that to brands that we want to work with. What are the most important uh, statistics or metrics? Is it engagement, following? What, what should we be displaying? Yeah, so you have to give the standards, like here's what my following count is. You know, I typically have three to 5% engagement on posts that look like this or I have 10% engagement. There are some people, like I'm, I'm looking at some of the, the very nano influencers with, you know, maybe 2,000 influencers and they're getting, you know, maybe 800 likes on a post. 
And then you look at someone that has 20,000 and they might get 800. So the engagement levels are different. So you have to, you need to be able to calculate what your engagement is. And then you go into, and what people need to understand more of is going to the back end or going to your in-app tools and telling them who your audience is. This is the age demographic. This is where they live. Um, this is the sort of consumer, because people want to understand more consumer behavior. Two, three years ago, it was just based off of what's your following count? How many likes do you get? How many comments do you get? Now people want to understand what's the what's the demographic? Where do they live? What times do they engage with your posts? What are the most high-performing posts? What are your most high-performing stories if you're talking about Instagram? And I'm only talking about those things because that's where people are typically looking right now to sure. find some of those metrics. Um, and then folks are also, you know, Twitter is a really good tool. They're, they're, they're introducing a lot of tools for, they have a, a VIT platform now for folks that are like super influential on Twitter. And it's like oh, well, very important. I don't know about that. I don't know about oh, that. VIT. You got to be a VIT. Okay. Okay. So that's a very important Twitterer. Yeah, it's like a yeah, very important tweet and it helps to it helps to streamline if you wanted to like for you it would be great because what you could do is start to create more on you know offline chats you know so you have the podcast maybe you partner with Twitter and you do something with the, the VIT program it'll help to streamline all of your Q and A's and put it and organize it in a data set for you but then you know you can there's so much out there you know we I was on the phone with the head of product you know at TikTok. And so just talking about what those influencers. So right now, what are influencers getting paid? Somebody get get as little as like trade, you know, hey, I'll post your blank product and you give me the product. And then you have people getting hundreds of thousands for a content, not a post, but like content. People want you to do do the thing, talk about the thing. Um, but it all depends on the product. It all depends on the brand. I know collectively in 2020, I think the the economy or just the landscape, it's expected that three billion will have been spent on influencer marketing. Wow. So the so the massive trend is towards not only influencer marketing, but nano and and and, and micro. Oh, a hundred percent. I think the brands that are doing it well, they have a great mix of, you know, someone that has a celebrity endorsement, but then someone that's like, you know, a, a mega influencer or an influencer that maybe has millions and then a micro community, a, a micro influencer, and then a, a great set of nano influencers, not just one, because, you know, some of the brands need all kinds of different nano influencers. Those are the folks that really have the trusted communities. You can, And you can actually see what their audience is saying. You can see that they're their audience has turned their notifications on and they want to hear everything that person is saying. And they want that person to take them. Their user journey is tell me what to, to eat in the morning. I want to see you post an avocado toast with a, a boiled egg because then I'm going to eat that. I want to see what you're going to wear because maybe I might wear a certain color like that. I want to see what you're having for dinner because it's going to inspire me to do the same thing. So you have to look at how the audience is performing. Because it's a mixture of aspiration. I want to look at you. I want to look like you. But then are you inspiring audiences? Because if you're not inspiring audiences and you don't have a call to action, then your influencer program or you being an influencer is out the window. Interesting. This is interesting. So so 
someone who wants to access some of this this three billion right going to uh, influence yeah. <laughs> right is that they need to identify their values they need to then convey that specifically to their audience figure out how they can teach because it's about how we right so mm-hmm. how to teach and then try to continue to build community right as they're doing this they can then look at their data across their different platforms pull out the engagement data, et cetera, then maybe what identify brands and literally just say, hey, here's what I do. What's, I guess, maybe Here's the thing, brands may come to you. Brands may come to you. Listen, there are influencers out there. And here's the thing, you build a community before you need the community. There are influencers out there that have 13,000, 10,000 Instagram followers. Let's just say that. And they may have 700 Twitter followers. In a world, you're like, what? That's nothing. I see people that have 200,000 and 300,000. But these folks have built a community before they need the community. They built their mailing list. They built you know, themselves up. Maybe they built up traditional press. So when you Google them, their Google optimization is a little different. They may be playing, you know, they may have a library of assets on YouTube where people can see them. So when I say like you have to look at all of the tools and you have to present all of the data sets, you, if you're doing it the right way, you don't have to go to the brands. You won't have to go to the people. They're going to come to you. And if you are very consistent and firm with your values, your belief systems, what you're communicating and how you want to communicate it, and you're consistent with that and you don't waver, if a brand comes to you and you and they, you're like, my values are, you know, around family and legacy and, and healthy eating and an alcohol brand comes to you and says, I want to pay you a hundred grand to do X, Y, and Z. You say, I'll take it. <laughs> Listen, there are some people that will take it. And then your audience is like, well, do I trust you? Because you were, re- you were reckless. Now, I mean, you could be doing something responsible. I'm just saying if someone's like, out there, you know, doing something reckless, is your audience going to trust you? And then you may have now ruined the opportunity for that brand that fits right into your values that might take you three more years to get to that will come with something three times that amount. And not only does it serve you financially, but it serves your values, it serves your audience, and it serves the trajectory of where you're going. That's That's the key in, in creating a sustainable plan. I mean, there's that quick, you can get, you know, we've been approached by so many brands. I don't eat, a, you know, a lot of fast food. We've been approached by fast food brands. Can you do this? And it's like, wow, that check looks really nice. Yeah. But no, we can't. We can't take you on because this doesn't fit into our values. And this doesn't yeah. fit into our belief system. Yeah, no, I'm with it. I will say, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought influencer marketing, I don't know about this thing, right? But I will tell you, over the last year, some of the influencer deals that I've done have been some of the most rewarding just because of the flexibility, the income, the assets that were given. Like I did this deal with Audi. It's incredible. The most Oh, they have a great influencer program. Yeah, it was it was good. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Audi. Just because. Shout out. <laughs> oh, well, wait. So wait, listen. Listen. I'm a, I'm about to turn the table on you. Uh-oh. Talk, Uh-oh. talk, talk to us about that. I, the people want to know. Like, you did a deal with Audi. So, what was the deal? Did you have to do a certain amount of posts? Did you have to produce video content? 
did you have to write or pen any pieces? I like this. I like this, sis. I'm going to break it all down. So they approached me, right? Uh, they approached me through an agency. The mm -hmm. agency then contacted me. Uh, they wanted, so it was, it was about 85,000 mm -hmm. pounds. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and they also provided me with a Q5 for a year. All right now, riding brand, in style. Brand, brand new Q5 for the year. My responsibility was, it was, I think it was five posts okay. on Instagram, something like 20 stories. Okay. But the, and, and then also I appeared, I was one of five people to appear in a commercial for them that, that ran, not like Dell. It didn't run everywhere in the world. Like you, like <laughs> it ran it just, I think the UK, right. But, um, that was it. And the beauty is that I was able to take that money and produce some incredible content. So, mm -hmm. uh, one of my partners, we produced one piece where, uh, we gave, um, uh, we went to schools and donated books, right? And you just see me ride up in the Audi to drop off the books. Um, awesome. Or we, we fed the homeless um, here, or, or folks who are called Sleeping Rough in the UK. And, you know, film me drive up, but then get out and, you know, buy the supplies, et cetera, and then give it to them. So it just, just incredible. Like, it just, awesome. just incredible. It's incredible, you know? Um, and, the, and the 85K, you know, it is. <laughs> that was cute. I mean, That's we. That's cute. It's, it's you not gotta eat. Listen, yeah. you, you, got, you got the kids. That's, <laughs> that's cute. And I think I think that does work for a lot of folks, especially it fits into your lifestyle. And I like that just in hearing how you did it, I understand, I understood who you were. You know, what did you give back? You didn't just take it and say, I'm gonna post a photo of myself next to the Audi. I'm gonna turn that into a content series where I am giving back. I am doing something because at the end of the, the day, that meme will come up. What did they do.com? Like, what did you do? What did you do? And I do think that folks, when you're, when you're an influencer, you have such a responsibility. And I will say now you have an obligation to audiences because of the power of thought and the power of influence. And now I think it's, it, it's expected that 20% of the population is making purchases based off of what an influencer or another person, because everybody's some sort of influencer, whether you have one follower of, you know, you know, 10 million followers, you, everyone has some sort of influence over some, wow. over some wow. person. So, but if wow. it's expected that the population is influenced, 20% of people are making consumer purchases based off of something that they saw someone else have. Yeah. So now yeah. when I think about buying an Audi, I might not just think about buying the Audi, but I'm thinking about all of the places that I will go, all of the things that I will do, all of the people I will help in said luxury vehicle. There you go. Makes sense. And thanks for, for turning the tables. So I better <laughs> only ask you one last question. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to be all in my business, right? <laughs> so I just want to ask you about your best friend, right? Oh, wow. Because I, I feel like, your husband is an, has played an integral role in the evolution of you, Ikea, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So just, just, just speak to that a little bit because, and let me tell you why I'm bringing this up. Because, you know, oftentimes when we talk about entrepreneurship or building companies, 
the, the narrative is always, okay, that one person did it, right? But that one person goes home and has either a support system that then facilitates more growth mm-hmm. or has yeah. not a support system where it becomes destructive, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I so highly respect about you is that, you know, you 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 really are a f- like family it's clear that family is a top value to 100% mm-hmm. and 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 then so i think oftentimes people may wonder well god how's she doing all this like how you got these kids right she's running this company she's running around with serena williams like and then but as a husband right how like how do you balance that so i guess maybe it's a two part question it's one what role has your husband played in mm-hmm. your business success? Mm-hmm. And then how do you balance the relationship Oof. between your husband? That's a lot. I know it's a lot. Go ahead. You give got, it to us in two minutes. Um, okay. <laughs> That's a lot to unpack in two minutes. I mean, very early on, he was the one, like when we got together, when I was only like 21. And I was like, I want to be a dentist. And so he was like, ah, that's what your ministry is right so like being a really good mirror like being a really good mirror to help me understand things and I I think my husband is the type of person he's not going to yes me to death he's not going to say oh my gosh that's amazing you're we are we balance each other really well and I think he has he's very much a left brainer and we are completely opposite I'm the one that's like oh cool and creative and he's like well did you think about it and he asks a lot (laughs) well did you think about it and and then the more questions that he asks me as a left brainer and as an operations person like he works in systems and operations the more it helps to challenge my way of thinking to say well how can I make it better how can I be smarter faster and better so I think he's He's one of those people that really will help to challenge the creative thoughts. Um, and so really, how has he helped? When So when I said 2015, also, he left his big corporate job to become the COO of our company. Oh, what? In so, 2015? Yeah, it was like 2015. Because what I didn't say was I got comfortable with an employee and was letting her like manage things. She was stealing money from the company, writing and signing checks, writing and signing checks. I woke up one morning and I said to him, I said, something doesn't feel right. Can you help me look through my accounts? He helped me to match up the dates of the the, the, the dates where the checks were signed. She was taking the stamps, you know, like the, your uh, signature yeah. stamps and using it. And he was like, oh, you weren't here on this date and you weren't there on this date. And you. So we found out that she was taking it and stamping and spending all of this money, using the company credit cards, all of these things. So he said, listen, if you can somehow, because, you know, we have a house, we have kids, match my salary in the next year. The plan is that I will leave and come and manage the operations full time. And that's what we did. We had a a one-year plan, maybe turned into like maybe a year or two. um, And he came and became operations. And so working on the tech, here's the tech side, like, do we have the compliance things we need? It, again, being the COO, you know, are our, you know, attorneys in the right place? Like all of the systems and operations so that I could fo- focus on what I do best, 
and that's the the creative you know like that's the creative that's the ideation that's the trend forecasting and the thinking and I we try I mean we're still trying to work on it you know like how do we separate those things like I I see a therapist I'm like let me talk yeah. things out on Monday mornings and Absolutely. and and you know sometimes he you know last week he said in one of my therapy sessions he was like that was really good like that was really good and it's just like talking things out and again knowing who you are like I'm like I know who I am I know how I will react to something if I know myself then I know the other person in the room whether it's you know my husband whether it's somebody I'm working with and so we're still working on those things but I will say it's been a working and it took us maybe like four years to get to a point where we like you know, he's in this office, I'm in this office, you're upstairs, I'm downstairs, so that we could spend our time, like, with, like, talking about, like, family, like, our, we talk about, like, where are our kids going to go to college, what camps are they going to go to, where are we going for dinner on Saturday night, like, what, like, we, we need to have those kinds of discussions, and it can't always just be, like, work, 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 now, we do talk a lot about work, a lot, a lot, yeah, because I didn't realize, so, so he's currently, you both work, at Sky Blue Media. A hundred percent. I didn't realize you I were have another, Yeah, I have another brand called Everyday Jane. So I have an apparel brand exclusively sold on HSN. So he, I have a business partner for that. So he oversees those operations. And then Sky Blue Media is launching two more products under the umbrella for smaller entrepreneurs that can't afford like big ticket agencies. So we have a, mm. a smaller product that's a little more like snackable. Um, and then we're building out a SaaS platform for those who are still stuck on the languaging and the lexicon piece and need to understand how to operate in the future. So all of those products require someone to make sure that, you know, again, compliance and technology and legal, and, you know, patents and all of the things. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Wow. wow. All right. Last, last question. I swear. Okay. When you, when you, when you both met. Did you approach him or did he approach you? No, he approached me. Okay. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> You're like, of course I didn't approach him. Of course. Paul, are you crazy? <laughs> no, I was like in a, at a party with my friends and, okay. you know, okay. he came up to me and I was like, oh, hey. But the funny thing is I had met him years before. I, I hadn't remembered that I'd met him years before. And I'd asked him for directions. I was like, hey. Um, do you know how to get to such and such and such and such? And he told me. And then when I met him, I was like, dang, he looks familiar. And my friend was like, <gasps> that's the guy that gave us the directions like two years ago. Because we got lost. We remembered because we got lost. So that could technically, that technically you were the first to, to approach the directions, though. Uh, yeah, all right. So you've thrown off my whole, my whole, I, I wish I'd even ask you that question because so I have been on this survey of everyone that I, you know, I'm talking to. I'm, I'm asking if you are married, how did you meet your spouse? Mm. And you know that one hundred percent of the women, until you, young lady, said that they approached their husband. Really? Yes. Dang, yes. Well, what did that say about me? <laughs> you know. Also, your reaction was like, "How dare you ask me this?" So what I was like, no. Mean? I was like, no, he came up to me. What does that say? Ooh, I listen, that might need to be some work that I do. Like, wh why did I respond that way? It's interesting. But I will say, 
it makes sense that you two work together because that's a value of yours, family. It must be a value of his family. 100%. Which is, yeah, which is the reason why you, you, you two have the strong union. Rakia, I think you're great. Oh, thanks. And, this was great. I, I enjoyed this. This was like speaking to my therapist. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I, I um, you know, I will say that talking to you was refreshing. Because oh. everything that I see, you know, that I see is, is, is what I got, right? And oftentimes, you know, you meet someone, you have a conversation with someone who you've seen, you know, from afar, and you realize, oh, man, I am really like, uh, nah, they're a little crazy. Like, yeah, I don't know about them. But you just have so much good energy. Oh. And like, really, like you, you are like this light, you know, in the world. And I appreciate you. I'm proud of you. I respect everything that you do. You're, you're actually, you're like the blue light of the world. Oh, okay. I like that. You're the blue light of the world. That's exactly what you are. Well, thank you. I'm going to add that to my dossier. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. This was awesome. No, I, I, I listen, been a fan since we first met. You interviewed me years ago. Like you, you interviewed, I would say the dark days of Skype. <laughs> But I'm I'm excited to to talk to you again in in the golden days. Yeah, I tell you, things are good. Things are good. Yeah. Things oh, I good. can tell. I mean, listen, I can tell. I can tell by the kids. I can tell by like again, like seeing your wife do yoga, seeing you all in the house. I mean, that is that's the content I love to see. Like just people being happy with their families, enjoying life, traveling, going to eat good food. You know y'all little matching outfits. You know I see the I see the little monochromatic vibes y'all got going on. You know yeah, what like, does that mean? Can I, is, so should I change this up? Because I'm I'm very. This is me being colorful today. I dressed up for you because normally I'm just all black. Up. But why yeah. all black? When your brand colors are yellow. Aren't they yellow, black, and white? Yeah. So I, 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 I the yellow is just a little bit of excitement. But I'm 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 I wear I wear black. 98% of the time. Hmm. You know, most brands that utilize black in their coloring, um, it, a lot of luxury brands do it. So when you say Audi, that would make sense. It would align with, from a marketing standpoint, I could see like the black and white. Those are luxury brand companies. So if you're someone and the inside of your home, is, if the inside of your home is like, you know, white, or you use natural things, or you use like oatmeal colors and things like that, it's people that, and and there's nothing wrong with this. People that are attracted to like brands of like luxury or they have a taste of luxury. And I think that's, I think that's great. I think you can tell someone's personality by their brand colors, but I see the first, I think when I saw maybe one of your emails or I went maybe to your IG page for the podcast, I saw the yellow in there and the yellow from a brand standpoint is used to evoke happiness. So if you're someone that wants to bring a refreshing or, you know, a refreshing perspective that is a little jovial, you might use a little yellow in there. So I can see the black, the white, and then I can see the yellow. And it's just a little bit of a code of how a marketer would read you. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I like the I'm yellow. I think it's great. But I, I mean, here's the thing. Wear what you, you know, wear what you want. I don't know what the shirt says. but You, if you, you know what this is? This is a, a monarinus. Oh, yes. 
so this is actually some, so my, my brother's an artist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we've got a little situation called Antadia, little little clothing situation. Oh, and it is moments of our history, of Black history, that are oftentimes either mm-hmm. forgotten or not known. So this was the queen of the Kush Empire. Mm-hmm. She was the only person to defeat Alexander the Great. The mm-hmm. only one to defeat Alexander person. the Great. So th- this, this, this is the moment where she beheaded yeah, a statue mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, of Alexander the Great. It, it, it incre- like she, incredible. But once again, you know, it's just, she's either not talked about or, you know, so, uh, so yeah, so we have a couple of pieces, Mansa Musa, you know, the Windrush. Oh, yes. yeah. I yeah. love that. Yes. Let me know when that rolls out. Well, we'll do I it. like we'll that do kind it. of note, but no, I like, I like what you have on. I think you're, you know, speaking of the times, like, you know, in a hoodie at home and you're saying something you're wearing something that says something. Again, what did they do.com? You just educated this whole audience, gave a history lesson, sort of, you know, as we're doing this learning and unlearning, you're doing that by wearing it. So I love it. You got it. Thank you. I feel good now. I feel good. This is great. Amazing. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I wish you the best. Also, whenever you, your family are in the UK, please let me know. I sure will. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. All right. Bye. Yeah. And there you have it. The incredible story of Rakia Reynolds. Now, I want to specifically thank Rakia for swerving me, <laughs> right? Every time I tried to ask her how much money her company was making, she was like, next subject. Uh, but I really appreciate that. And it actually goes to show you how great a brand strategist she is because she stayed on message and never deviated from it. Uh, so Rakia, thank you so much for really that masterclass for all of us. And let me remind you all that I have given each and every one of you 10 bonus episodes at the beginning of this podcast. And these are all affirmations. You know, you heard Rakia and how diligent she's been throughout her entire career, and that's because of her mindset. And I want to say that changing my mind was one of the most impactful moves to my business. And I largely did that through affirmations. So I want to encourage you to check out the affirmations. They're all bonus affirmations. And these are all affirmations that I personally use and have been using for the last five years. And that's all I got. So until the next session, I'll see you, my friends. Take care. Board.